0: Well, what should we talk about today? (laughs) Say this with me. The harvest is plentiful. I want to take you down that road again. This week and next week, we're going to conclude this little series. I have one more thing to share with you next week. I couldn't quite fit it in this week, so I've added it to next week. If you have your Bibles open, to again, Matthew's Gospel, chapter 9 two verses, I hope, becoming more and more familiar and uh, more and more uh, encouraging. Jesus, Matthew records, is gone around all the towns and villages and he's preaching and teaching and ministering and healing people and as he does so, he, he takes note of the people and he sees them as all happy and everything's fine and they're all content and feeling safe and secure, right? No, he doesn't view them that way. How does he view them? Harassed, helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. And truth be known, nothing has changed. As, As hard as you and I try to feel secure... And we do everything in our life, in our, in our, in our, in our own energy and strength to, to try to secure our lives. There's this always, underneath the surface, there's this vague sense of dis-ease, isn't there? Especially when we're focused just on this temporal life and temporal existence. How many have insurance? Different kinds of insurance. Why do you have insurance? Protect you against... Loss, right? Protect you against this, that, and the other thing. That's just again another example, another sign. There is really uh, there there is a a continual threat against our lives. You just don't know. You, we all know people who have just fallen over a heart attack, huh? We know people who just gotten killed in an accident, or we know somebody who knew somebody. Uh, It's just ongoing. And people live in a in a controlled state of panic, if the truth be known. Wondering if 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 some disaster is going to befall them. And you can go crazy if you let yourself get too far out there thinking about that, couldn't you? People begin to begin to experience all manner of anxiety and, and fear and such. So nothing's really different today than it was then. Jesus viewed them as Uh, helpless, harassed, as sheep without a shepherd. And guess what? We're still the same. People today in the world are still the same. They are harassed. We see it across the world on our TV screens. We read about it in the newspaper, uh, things that are going on, horrible things. Uh, Darfur is a a classic example. Uh, Parts of the world that are despotic. And uh, people are just experiencing all manner of, of, of desperation. So he sees this. And he turns to his disciples. And he says this thing to them He says, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. That's not just a declarative statement, it's a challenge. It's a challenge to his disciples. He says, in effect, have you noted? Have you seen what I see? Do you see with the same eyes that I see? The harvest is plentiful. Say that with me again. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. The need is great. So he lays the challenge out to them, and he says, this is how you meet the challenge. Pray. Pray. Ask the Lord of the harvest to send, what? Workers into His harvest field. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, again, Jesus, just prior to His ascension, in His final words to His disciples, He says to them that they would receive power And this is true, every Christian receives power from God. And it comes by faith. You will receive power, and you then will be my witnesses. We're called to be his witnesses. We're called to be the people who go out into the harvest field. All of us, not just a few. All of us. Part of that prayer is, Lord, send workers into your harvest. Lord, give us eyes to see. Give me eyes to see. At some point in each one of our lives and experience, at some point, we have to see it's not just about me. I've got to expand my understanding of what my life is really to be all about. What has God called me to? We've been talking about community. Community. We need to be in community. We need to be together. We need to consider how we can incite one another on to love and good deeds, says the writer of the Hebrews. We need to be people who fulfill God's calling on our lives individually as well as corporately through various ministries and our giftings and such. We've talked about that. And we need to be people who are serious about seeing other people, one, into the kingdom of God. In fact, turn to Romans chapter 10, if you would, with me. I want you to note verses 14 and 15. It's in this particular passage, Paul speaks, I think, with some urgency, and he, and he, and he through four questions, demonstrates the indispensable necessity of this issue of evangelism. It's absolutely indispensable. There's no way around it. He says, in order to be saved, sinners must call on the name of the Lord. And then he says, how then can they call on the one they have not believed in? How can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? How can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how could they preach unless they are sent? Years ago, we, in our staff, we, we developed a, a little, kind of a little slogan to describe what, what we're all about. How can, we, how can we say in a concise manner what our church is about, what our fellowship is about? And we, we boiled it down to three words. Most of you are aware of those three words. They are. Win, equip, and send that we've been one. The next phase of our spiritual existence is that we are equipped so that we can, what? Be sent, be commissioned to go and tell other people. This is the very thing that Paul talks about in Romans chapter 10. He's saying, in effect, unless people are commissioned for the task, there will be no gospel preaching. Unless the gospel is preached, sinners will not hear the message of Christ, the good news. And unless they hear Him, they will not believe. And unless they believe, they will not call on Him. And unless they call on His name, they will not be saved. Do you see the indispensable necessity of evangelism? That we be commissioned, we be equipped, and we be sent so that we can announce and declare the good news to those that we encounter. At the end of Matthew's Gospel, when Jesus um, enunciates the great, what we call the Great Commission, He says, Go into all the world and preach the good news, and, and baptize in My name, and teach them to obey everything I've commanded you. So when He says go, it, it literally can be translated from the Greek... As you go on your way. So it's not like you're, you're gonna go to China, but as you get up in the morning and you go, you go to your job, you, 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 you stop off at Starbucks, you, uh, you know, whatever you do in your routine, as you go, as you go to the doctor's office, as you go to have lunch with somebody, as you go on your vacation. You see, that's really what Jesus is talking about. In other words, it's a lifestyle, it's a lifestyle of sharing, and and not just, I just want people to see how nice I am. No, it, it's the fact that I would take the next step and, 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 and speak. Words would come out of my mouth. Am I making sense? So I began to talk to you last week about some principles for effective evangelism, if and I, and I just asked this simple question. How, how can we, how can we as a congregation, how can we as, as Hope Chapel be more effective? Now, we can always be more effective, can't we? We can always be more effective. So let's ponder, let's think together, let's reason together. How can we be more effective in reaching people for Christ? I believe that every single member of our congregation wants to see people one for Christ. Is that a fair statement? Can I make that assumption? But I would also say that every one of us, we want to see people one to Christ, but also, we also are saying, I want to be more effective. Is that a fair statement too? Sure, all of us. Now, last week I shared with you two principles. One, that effective outreach begins with, anybody remember, begins with? Character, character not compassion. compassion. Now, what did I mean by that? If I can reduce it to this, it's simply, and all of us understand this. A lot of times, there's something that we that we should be doing, ought to be doing, that's right, that needs to be done, right? But we don't do it because we don't feel like it. Well, I just don't feel it. And I won't do it till I feel it. Now, I mean, I think all of us are familiar with that kind of thing, right? So the point of this is, is don't wait till you feel it. Do it because it's right, and then you'll feel it. Then you'll feel good. Then you'll feel better about yourself. Then you'll, you'll feel accomplished, uh, and so forth, and so forth. Does that make sense? Tracking with me? All right. The second principle I share with you is that effective outreach begins, or, or deals realistically with the issue of fear. Truth be known, there isn't hardly a, a, any of us that, that isn't afraid or experiences fear to some degree. Because why? We don't want to be rejected. We don't want to be laughed at. And the minute you give into it, the boogeyman of fear just takes over your mind, doesn't it? You go, they're going to they're gonna kill me. I was proud of that young gal. Where is she? This morning I told you about that uh, went out on that street corner and uh, uh, talk to those three guys. Uh, some people say, well, that's foolish and it's foolhardy. But, but she just was convicted to go do it. They did it. She did it. So effective outreach realistically deals with the fear issue. We looked at Acts chapter 4 and those early Christians. The context is persecution. Peter and John had been arrested, taken for the Sanhedrin, Uh, Threatened and so forth, and and, and, uh, their compatriots are are afraid themselves. And so they pray a prayer, a simple prayer, for assurance assurance, God, you see what's going on here. You take note of the threats of our enemies. That prayer included a, a request for a courage that would be greater than their fear. God, make me bold give me a courage that's greater than this fear that I'm experiencing right now. They asked God for miracles to happen. Stretch forth your hand and and, 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 and cause miracles to happen. And then Luke records that they were filled with the Holy Spirit. And as a result of that prayer and and the filling of the Holy Spirit, he says, they spoke the word of God boldly boldly Uh, the fear was overcome intimidation was overcome it's always going to be there but they had a greater courage than their fear to share truth be known there are a lot of christians who are fearful and embarrassed they just simply need that pray that prayer god help me overcome this fear give me a greater a greater courage work miracles and then stick around and watch for the miracles have eyes to see the things that god's doing watch Expect something to happen. Thirdly, effective outreach begins on the inside, not the outside. Most people are not really prepared on the inside for the work that they try to do on the outside. And this leads to little lasting fruit. This is why you know, I keep saying, take a class, take a class, be instructed. Uh, We financial classes we have bible classes we have uh, skills training classes all these things so that you can be better prepared on the inside to do on the outside and be much more effective and and uh, chances are produce more lasting fruit this especially affects our efforts at reaching people for jesus christ now there are two important inside issues that must be addressed the first one is prayer How how we see prayer is how we respond to Christ's challenge in verse thirty seven of Matthew chapter nine. Prayer, he says. He says, "Ask the Lord of the heart." This is how you respond to the challenge. You see, there has to be a prayer base for everything we do. There has to be a prayer base within the congregation that makes it conducive for not only for people to find Christ, but also for those people to sense the power of God when they come into our midst. And that happens because there's a strong, continual prayer base. Imagine, imagine, if in all of our groups, on an ongoing basis, many church, discipleship groups, fellowship times, Bible studies, if all of our groups, congregational meetings, every time we're gathering together, and indeed, when we're by ourselves, in our own private devotional times, what do you think would happen if we prayed those two prayers? Acts chapter 4 and Matthew chapter 9. Lord, send workers into your harvest field. Lord, give us a boldness that is greater than our fear. Work miracles. Fill us with your Spirit. What do you think might happen if we, on an ongoing basis, prayed those, just those two simple prayers? We'd probably be winning souls. We'd We'd probably see miracles happening, people's lives would be changed. We might see revival if we had a concerted effort. Everybody was on the same page. We're all praying the same way. You think that you think that God might hear and answer that kind of prayer? I think so. See, just a, a concerted effort in prayer, an expression of God. We cannot do this without you. Move your mighty hand. Move us, God. One writer said, where prayer focuses, power falls. You might want to write that down. That's a keeper, I think. Where prayer focuses, power falls. You know, throughout the scriptures, we we see again and again um, prayer And the prayer burden, if you will, for people who are lost. Moses, in Deuteronomy chapter 9, you might want to just flip back to Deuteronomy chapter 9 real quickly with me. Page 189. Verse 25. Here's Moses recounting from the book of Exodus when he interceded up on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights for the people. He says, I lay prostrate before the Lord those 40 days and 40 nights because the Lord had said he would destroy you. So here's Moses with a burden for the Israelites because God said he was going to kill them. And Moses, one man intercedes, one man prays. I prayed to the Lord and said, O sovereign Lord, do not destroy your people, your own inheritance that you redeemed by your great power and brought out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Prayer. Prayer. And God relented, didn't He? He did not destroy them. Jesus prays this eloquent prayer from the most discomforted position. What position was that, do you think? When He was hanging on the cross. What prayer did He pray for those who were lost? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Oh, man. I promise you, if I was up on that cross, I'd real quick get in my flesh. What's left of it? I think probably most of us would. We'd be hard-pressed. I mean, just just think of the last time someone just cut you off on the freeway. Father, forgive them. God bless you. Now, oh, most of us are tightening our jaw, right? Get them, God, and I don't mean save them. No, Jesus said, "Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing." Prayer. It doesn't need to be some long, eloquent thing. It's just one phrase, one statement, one heartfelt sentiment. God, save him. He tells us to pray, again, in Matthew chapter 9. Ask the Lord of the harvest, send workers into his harvest field. The Apostle Paul, in the ninth chapter of the book of Romans, in the first couple of verses, speaks of his, his own really great personal sorrow and increasing anguish of heart for his Jewish brethren. Listen to his words. Listen to his sentiment. He says, For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, those of my own race, the people of Israel. That's a, that's a prayer, isn't it? That's a, that's, a, that's a heart for the lost. And, beloved, as you and I, as we build a prayer base on the inside, it will make us effective in outreach on the outside. Everything starts with prayer. Everything is birthed in prayer. Everything is bathed in prayer. We don't fully understand the connection there. And, and prayer is just sometimes just being quiet before the Lord and even moaning and groaning before Him. In anguish. Sometimes we we don't even have the words to say. And maybe it's just you have somebody or some situation in mind and heart and all you can do is go, Oh, God. That's an eloquent prayer. The second inside issue is attitude. Attitude. That is, how we respond to lost people. What's my attitude towards lost people? Remember Luke chapter 15, Jesus tells three parables. Three parables. The lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son, or the, the prodigal son. What was unique and what was common about all three Of those situations? Well, they were all lost. Were they valued? Were they sought after? Were they found? And what happened when they were found? Great rejoicing. Notice, they were all lost. They were valued. They were sought after. And they were found, and there was great rejoicing. Question is, is that our attitude? Is that our attitude? Or do we not care? Do we ignore that which is lost? Do we, in a sense, have more and more of Jesus' heart towards? the loss, and the perishing. I really believe in the principle of redundancy. How many know that? <laughs> Repetition is the best teacher. You know, and, and and when you hear something again and again and again, there's a temptation to kind of let it go in one ear and out the other like our kids, right? But there's some aspect to, to which our life, we, we hear it and we... we, we, we can, We expose ourselves, and we're confronted, and we say, "I, all right, I'm going to engage this. Is that a reality for many? Nobody. Two. Thank you. Okay. I'm going to continue talking to you guys. I better stretch this series out some, huh? What do you think? What's our attitude? Or do we, like Jesus, see them as helpless and harassed? hopelessly lost and perishing. Because they don't see themselves that way, do they? People just kind of go through life and, and, and they, they think, well, I'm, I'm a pretty good person. We know that routine because all of us were there at some point. Thought we were okay. We don't see ourselves as lost and, and, and then we become saved and, and chances are, unless we're reminded about this, where we came from, we're not going to necessarily go back and see others as lost. See what was Jesus' attitude toward them? He embraced them. He went to them. He ate with them. He mingled with them. He talked with them. I've I just said, let's let's practice being friendly. <laughs> let's practice talking to people. Let's get out of ourselves. It's just practice. Walking down the street, someone is coming toward you. Look up and say, "Good morning." People don't know what to do with that. Or how are you? Have a great day. It's just what? Practice. Say it with me. It's practice. Just practice. I love doing that. And when, I, when I go to the gym in the morning, I'm, I, I try to get there really early and, and there's, a, you know, there's a big parking lot and people walking in and walking out and such. And, and, and I, I make myself do this because I don't feel like it. It's early in the morning. I don't feel talkative. My wife, early in the morning, is like a little chipmunk. She chit-chatted. She's all over the place. She loves the morning. I have to make myself do that. And so I look at people and say, good morning. Who's that weirdo? And I just tell myself, you're practicing. You're just practicing. Be friendly. Be friendly. Talk to people. Say something. Open your mouth. And sometimes it's a huge effort, isn't it? And so this is what Jesus did. He, He engaged people. May I suggest that some of us may need to work a little on our attitude. Is that a fair statement? Do we have something to be happy about? Do we really? Happy people generally what? Happy people smile. They're friendly. Some of us need to smile more. Some of us, again, need to practice being friendly. I love some of the kids coming up the stairs. There were a couple of kids coming up the stairs this morning. I said, whoa, all right. Good morning, kids. I'm their worst nightmare at the top of the stairs. You know that. I said, let me see that smile. And they got beautiful smiles. This little girl goes, I went, wow, you have a great smile. And I guess there was a brother coming up behind us. Hey, smile. And he, was just, he, he didn't even wait for me. He was grinning from ear to ear because he knew he was going to get it too. So he, <laughs> he beat me to the punch. Someone once said, of all the things that people wear to church, the most important is their expression." we're happy because we have something to happy about we have something to be happy about and when we when we greet one another are our greetings courteous gracious do peop, do 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 we feel welcome or we do we look for people who maybe no one's talking to and no one's greeting and go out of our way to greet somebody do we make people climb over us to get into a chair Or do we, sitting on the aisle, move in so they can have the aisle seat? I get here early just to get the aisle. (laughs) They should get here early too. Help me with that one, please. How about our parking etiquette? I drive a compact car, and I'm going to use a full-size space. No, drive, use a compact space. Leave the full-size spaces for the people who drive the gas-guzzling SUVs. <laughs> okay. How about, how about just just taking the time to invite somebody out to a cup of coffee, maybe after church, somebody, maybe a new person. You know, in our greeting time, we, we look around, we meet somebody new and say, first time, oh, Hey, maybe after service if you got time with this. How about a cup of coffee? Now I know when I say that, there's a risk because you could have people inviting people that really ought not to invite people. You know what I'm talking about? Guys inviting girls, you know. Say, well, this have a little fellowship. You know, whatever can't don't, by the way, don't say, well, Pastor Zach said we should invite people out to (laughs) coffee after church. Number four, let's move on. Effective outreach is most successful, note this, effective outreach is most successful when it is built upon relationships. You see, if outreach is to be really effective and sustained Usually, it's built on relationships. Do you know that you can build a relationship with somebody in less than a minute? You can do that? Absolutely. It just takes a little bit of, little bit of effort. Look him in, in the eye. Make some contact. Because that's critical. Eye contact. And you can build a relationship with somebody in just a minute. Absolutely. If you don't believe me, take our evangelism class and we'll teach you how to do it every single time you will be absolutely utterly amazed See, you never know who you touch until you touch who you know that's where we start we start with those in our own personal jerusalem and judea and then samaria to the ends of the earth now the reality is if you've been a christian long enough you've run out of friends relatives and neighbors right so now you're dead in the water no you got to go meet some more people you meet people by being friendly. You meet people just by extending yourself. I read a, uh, a survey uh, a few years ago, and this was the ways in which people come into relationship with Jesus. There are six basic ways that people come into relationship with Jesus. And, and, I, and there's a percentages of people uh, in this list. And I, I thought this was very, very enlightening. We all know about evangelistic crusades on TV, right? Like Billy Graham and some of the others, and, and especially on Christian TV and such. What percent of people do you suppose, because of an evangelistic crusade on TV, come to Christ? What is it? 1%. 1%. All that effort, all that expense, 1%. Many churches have, in the past, and and some still today, have church visitation programs. Now, we don't do that. Unless someone says, I'd like a pastor to visit me, then we go visit, or one of our elders. But we don't have a formal church visitation program. But churches that do employ those, fully 2% people come to Christ because of a church visitation program. 2%. Church programs in general... This is always a source of amazement to me. Churches have all these programs. And if you don't know it already, I am committed to not having a whole bunch of programs as much as I'm committed to us making disciples. Because the return on investment of all the energy and money and so forth from church programs is... What percent do you think come as a result of church programs? 4%. Whereas if each one of us in this room, you've heard me talk about this before, if each one of us in this room would take seriously the Great Commission and we would just go for six months, find somebody, lead them to Christ, make a disciple for six months, teach them to do the same thing, do you think that we could make a greater impact than simply 4%? Be much more effective than having all of our church programs. Sunday school. Now, Sunday school is, we are not it's not in the sense of children's church. This is an adult Sunday school. A lot of churches still, still have it. We have it in a sense that it's kind of just all of the classes we offer, except this is not on Sunday morning. Sunday school. What percentage of people do you think come to Christ as a result of Sunday school? Four percent. Four percent. Walk-ins. You don't have to do anything. People just walk in. 5%? That's why we want a big front door. (laughs) Big parking lot. People just walk in. 5% give their life to Christ as a result of just walking into the church. How about the pastor? No, it's more than 3%. 8% of people come to Christ just because of the pastor. That pains me. (laughs) Friends and relatives. 76%. 76% of people will come to Christ because of friends and relatives. But again, as I mentioned earlier, most of us have already gone through all of our friends and relatives and neighbors so we've got to go meet some more friends, make some more friends, be friendly. George Gallup reported these statistics in a poll not too long ago. He says one in five Americans 18 years or older identifies him herself as an evangelical. One in five, 20%. Say this with me. The harvest is plentiful. One in five. He goes on and he says that eight out of ten Americans... Say they believe, they say this, they believe that Jesus Christ is God or the Son of God. They have a minimalist testimony. Say this with me, the harvest is plentiful. Four out of five want their children to have some kind of religious training. Let's say you're just an average average person. You're not even churched. Chances are you're going to think Do you want your kids to have some kind of values that come from some kind of religious training. Isn't that true? 80% of the people say that. The harvest is plentiful. 40 million adult Americans say that they had a conversion experience that included asking Jesus Christ to be their personal Savior. 40 million adult Americans many of whom are unchurched. And we know them, don't we? All of us know them, Christians, people who profess who are unchurched. Say this with me. The harvest is plentiful. Half, fully half, of the nation's 61 million unchurched adults say that they might be persuaded to become involved in a church if invited oh just invite them say this with me the harvest is plentiful would you agree we do not have beloved we do not have a good track record of reaching the unsaved we do not have a good track record a recent report in christianity today indicates that church growth comes from three sources Three sources. The first is biological growth. That means children of present members. The percentage of children of present members of the church that stay in the church, 17%. Let me say that again, 17%. What's happening? They may come to church... You may drag them, but when they're old enough to decide for themselves, guess what? The vast majority of them are not coming back. Why? Well, they've looked at their folks, they've looked at their families, they've looked at the friends of their families, they've heard the testimony, but they see something else going on. They don't see consistency. Consistency. There's no Bible training at home. There's no serious engagement. There's no concern for the kingdom of God, really. Maybe, largely, it's lip service. And these kids are concluding to themselves, hey, it's not real. There's no passion. Why should I be involved? And the church retains 17%. Then there's transfer growth. This is by far the largest source of growth for the church. Transfer growth, this is 70%. And transfer growth is just shuffling the deck chairs. Other churches and and, and denominations, people swapping churches. If if you come to our church from another church, uh, and I I find out, I'm going to ask you, Did you leave that other church on good terms? Was there a problem? Unresolved. Because if there was a problem unresolved, there's probably going to be a problem here. If you're unhappy with that pastor, you're probably going to be unhappy with me. If that pastor made you mad, I for sure will make you mad. (laughs) I'm not even going to ask for a show of hands how many people understand that one. Transfer growth. That means there's nobody being reached. And the the, the growth from the, the great pagan pool, from the pool of unsaved, beloved, is only 13%. We're not doing a very good job of reaching the unsaved. We need to be more effective. We can't depend on transfer growth. We've got to do a better job with our kids, with our families. We've got to do a better job with reaching out to those who do not know Christ. Number five, effective outreach includes many, not a few. It includes many. And we've got a great work to be done. We all know the 80-20 rule, right? 80% of the work is done by 20% of the people. It's a general principle. It's well accepted. It's, it's documented. There's a great work to be done. And it can't just be done by the few. It's got to be done by the Many. If we're to be effective, none of us can exempt ourselves. All of us, at some point, have to say, "All right, I'm in. I'm in. Count on me. I'm on the team." What would you think if you had a if you had a baseball team, and uh, you had members on the baseball team who kind of slacked off? They weren't rah rah. They weren't encouraging each other. They weren't participating or you know, the guy was playing lackadaisical in the outfield, or the pitcher wasn't giving his all, or the guys up the bat were, you know, just kind of swinging at the ball, not really. What would you think about those players? on the team? We're on the team. You have some cause for concern about their commitment level, huh? Would the team be very effective? No. Would morale be good? No, not at all. Three things I've discovered over the years as being a pastor with respect to this. I've discovered that Christians do not automatically get involved in outreach. Just because I preach on the Great Commission or on the Matthew 9 Harvest Principle, and I'm excited, I've discovered that this doesn't necessarily translate and mean that everybody else, everybody else is going to be excited like me and get involved. Don't you wish everyone would get involved, Theo Or, uh, Thie? He goes back there. Yes. The second thing I've learned is that evangelism usually only appeals to the few, the 20% or the 10%, and gives guilt to the rest. Now, I'm not even going to ask for a show of hands on that one either. Question. If you know that something needs to be attended to, or if you know that, that God has called us to some task, God has commanded us to do something, and you don't do it, how should you feel? Now, I get it back, and I say, Well, Pastor, you're putting a guilt trip on me. I hope so. You should feel guilty. You should feel guilty if, you're, if we're leaving the, the work to the few and we're sitting on the sidelines and we've got some lame excuse. Well, I don't like those million-dollar bills. Well, then go, do, go work some other strategy, but get in the harvest. It's always a battle. It's always a battle to get the many involved beyond just the few. The many. And even as I say this, I know that it's going to fall on some deaf ears. But I'll be back next week. (laughs) Thirdly, people will respond to outreach ministry if they have a place where they can contribute and feel comfortable. In other words, some people just don't know how to do this. They don't know how to function. That's why we have a class. And we have a class also to help you see how easy it is and how fun it can be. So it contributes. And, and the more people take the class and find out that this is really true and their experience re- reflects this, they go, wow, this is great. I can do this. And more people will become involved. And the flip side of that is the people who are on the receiving end think it's kind of fun. If, the, if you just do the minimum and give them a million-dollar bill and say, thanks a million. Or you're, you're in a restaurant and you're, and you're waiting and, uh, and you're, you're going to be seated and you just take a moment into uh, and, and the tables around you and you just pass out million-dollar bills to the table and say, have lunch on me. <laughs> I mean, there's a million ways to do this. You can be creative. You can have fun with it. And people go, oh, this is cool. Thank you. Very, very seldom do you have someone go... when you give them a million dollars. Number six. Effective outreach involves making disciples, not just making decisions. Beloved, there is no success in the Lord's work without successors. Got to make disciples. We determine we determine whether we have disciples or dropouts. And we do so basically by our attitude of what we are going to do with those people once they decide for Jesus or once they pray the prayer. See, it's our attitude, isn't it, in China? We go to China. It's our attitude. What do we do with these people? Well, now we've caught them. We have to clean them. Clean them. But see, that's what it's all about, isn't it? That's what it's all about. The Great Commission is more than just praying a prayer with someone, it's making disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that He has commanded us. Making disciples. Effective outreach. Effective outreach. Amen? Amen. I have one more for you next week. This is the cherry on the top of the Sunday. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your blessings. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your provision. We thank you for the privilege of participating with you in all that you're doing in this world. Lord, we do pray to you as Lord of the Harvest. Send workers into the harvest, O oh God, into your harvest field. And Lord, give us a certain boldness that we could be among those harvest. Fill us with your Spirit, O oh God. Stir our hearts. Cause us to see with your eyes. And Lord, that we would be faithful servants.